things are less stable than they ought to be, less stable than they were just a couple of days ago. And that instability, if let to go unchecked for a while, will become something that will make our American government weaker and therefore possibly embolden those who wish us ill. Hello and welcome to The Interview, our weekly podcast featuring conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your co-host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. And I'm Diana Falzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. For this week's episode of The Interview, we spoke with Major Garrett, the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News and creator and host of The Takeout Podcast. Major is out with a new podcast series for CBS called Agent of Betrayal, which tells the story of an FBI double agent, Robert Hansen, who is considered one of the most damaging covert operatives in our nation's history. Major joins us now. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with us, Major. I know this is a crazy week in Washington. Yes, uh, historically crazy, and that's saying a lot uh, considering the last five or six years in Washington politics. But this is another new dimension of never-before-seen politics. And um, I'd love to tell you that I know exactly what's going to happen next, but I can't. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, McCarthy was given the boot this week in a historic vote. What are your thoughts on this speaker's fight? Is it as much of a mess as it seems? Yes, it is. And it matters. Um, I was traveling earlier this week in Florida and talking to an audience, and I said, look, nod your head if you don't think the absence of a speaker is going to make any difference in your life tomorrow. And of course, they all nodded their heads, like, it doesn't matter. I'm like, okay, for tomorrow, you're right. And maybe even for next week, you're right. But I said, think about it this way. The speaker is third in line in succession to the president, succession to the president. That's a constitutional matter of importance. Not that anything's going to happen, but it matters to keep that order in place. I said the House also has defined constitutional responsibilities. It's the only institution in Congress that can initiate either a tax or any spending on any federal priority. The Senate can't do that, much as it might try. Only the House can originate those concepts, taxation or spending. And without a speaker, the House can't be organized which means the House can't organize itself on the two most important constitutional duties in furtherance of daily maintenance of the federal government of the United States. I said, over time, that's gonna matter in your life. Maybe not immediately, but over time. And I said, secondarily, understand this. When there's instability in the institutional structure of America, those who wish us ill take very careful notice and they chalk it up as something wrong or insufficiently stable about our particular approach to governance. And that's where we are now. Things are less stable than they ought to be, less stable than they were just a couple of days ago. And that instability, if let to go unchecked for a while, will become something that will make our American government weaker and therefore possibly embolden those who wish us ill. Uh, you, you've been covering Washington, D.C., Congress, the White House for decades now. How much have things changed over that time? Is what we're seeing now since the rise of the Tea Party in Congress and then the rise of Trump to the White House, has that remade the way business is done in Washington? Absolutely. Uh, There is no other answer but uh, emphatic yes to that very good question. So just for context, I started covering Congress in 1990. And the idea in 1990, even in 1994, when there was a changeover in power for the first time in 40 years, Republicans won control of Congress, the House of Representatives, for the first time in 40 years. Through the 2000s, even through the 2010s, even 
when the Tea Party movement was first expressing itself as an engine of political significance, I don't think anyone would have said, you know, in midstream, meaning the midway through a congressional session, a speaker could be ousted. Not over an ethical violation or some crime for keeping the government open. Because let us remind ourselves, though it's only a couple of hours old, that was Kevin McCarthy's offense. He kept the government open. Now, I know those who voted to oust him would say, no, no, it was other things. He was untrustworthy. But the precipitating action was keeping the government open and using Democratic votes to achieve that outcome. That was the straw that broke the back of Kevin McCarthy's speakership. And the idea that that would be so offensive within a majority party running the House of Representatives would only a few years ago have not only been inconceivable, it wouldn't have even been discussable. And so the parameters for what can be done and how much chaos you can inject into the system, and with chaos comes, believe it or not, paralysis, is now redefined. And that's the era we're living in for however long. So that's an amazing point about how McCarthy was really ousted for just keeping the government open. He lasted less than a year in this job. Before him, Paul Ryan, I think, lasted three years. Uh, before that, Boehner uh, lasted, uh, I think, fi just five years. Uh, so these are all very short stints for uh, Republican House speakers. Is that now, thanks to this new right flank in the Republican caucus, is that just an impossible job? It has become, it seems to me, only listening to those describing the aftermath of this historic ouster, the reality that it is an impossible job. And it's an impossible job when you empower one member of your conference with the leverage, the legislatively and politically lethal leverage of a motion to vacate. Mm. Kevin McCarthy made that concession early on in his marathon attempt to win the speakership. It took him 15 votes and he had to keep making concession upon concession. And one of the final concessions was, I'll make the speakership as weak as humanly possible in order to win it. Well, he won it and it was as weak as humanly possible. And that leverage that he handed over in exchange for holding the speakership turned the speakership into a temporary position, one in the hands of the most fractious, rebellious minority of House Republicans. And so now you have, at least in terms of organizing the House under a speaker, the tiniest conceivable minority running the entire operation. It is the smallest tail ever wagging the biggest dog in legislative politics in Washington. Do you have any sense how McCarthy feels about this? You just mentioned how much he sacrificed for this position and he got destroyed over it. I don't know anything more than what Speaker McCarthy, now ousted Speaker McCarthy has said publicly. I know him well enough to believe that this component he brings rhetorically to the job or did bring rhetorically to the job of ever optimistic, ever trying to work things out is a part of his approach. And there might be some part of him that believes his defeat under these circumstances might be a telling signal to Republicans in the House and maybe across the country that there are limits to this idea that if I don't get my way I will rebel, and I'll rebel so strongly that I'll burn things down. 
Kevin McCarthy has now introduced House Republicans to what that really looks like. And they're going to behold this period of uncertainty and this mad scramble within the Republican conference for a potential speaker with at least two, possibly three, maybe more vying for it. All of them maneuvering against one another, positioning against one another. And some of the most brutal internal politics in Washington are these internal party disputes over election to leadership positions. Lots of egos can be bruised there. Lots of memories can be made, both on the plus side and the negative side. I can talk to members of Congress who've been around a long time who can remember something that they were told in a leadership battle 12 or 13 or 14 years ago that was untrue. I'm with you all the way. And then they stab him in the back and vote for somebody <laughs> else. Those memories last a long time. House Republicans are going to be introduced into that scorpion in the bottle kind of politics for the next couple of weeks. And sorting that out will not be easy. You wrote a book last year called The Big Truth, which sounded the alarm on Trump's pervasive and remarkably dangerous claim that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Now, looking forward to 2024 and knowing what you found while reporting that book, are you worried about Trump's campaign and the state of democracy right now? Sure. What did the Trump campaign say this week through its chief strategist, Chris LaCivita? It said there should be no more Republican debates at all, period, full stop, and that everything in the party and its apparatus should be to stop Democrats from stealing the 2024 election, leaving the implication that, of course, as Trump always says, the 2020 election was stolen. It wasn't stolen. Trump lost fair and square. That is an indisputable fact that will never, ever budge. But this idea that it was stolen permeates the Trump base. And this idea, well, guess what? I'm not going to debate. There shouldn't be any debates. And the Republican Party shouldn't even focus on that at all. It should focus its resources on this idea of making sure that something that didn't happen doesn't happen again. Okay, well, that opens all sorts of questions about what Republicans will or will not believe, not only about the general election, but what they may or may not believe about primary elections in which Trump might lose. I don't know if he's going to lose any primary or caucus, but what if he does? What kind of internal dynamic and gnashing of teeth is that going to bring in Republican ranks? There are already tensions in state parties in some parts of the country among Trumpists about what they're getting or they're not getting or whether the Trumpists are Trumpian enough. Those kind of disputes could crop up in the primaries and caucuses as a precursor to disputes over the 2024 election. So I do have a lot of concerns about that. I have a question about Fox News, which is a, a network that you worked for years ago. I think it's it's fair to say that Fox has changed a lot since you were chief White House correspondent there, uh, particularly uh, when it comes to its coverage of Donald Trump and uh, his loss of the 2020 election. Just a few months ago, Fox had to pay $787 million to Dominion to settle a lawsuit over the lies it aired regarding that election. What did, what did you make of that whole saga and Fox's coverage of 2020, uh, their coverage of Trump, and, and how do you see the network now? So just so everyone knows, I worked for Fox News from 2002 to 2010. So when you said it's been a while, yes, it's been a while, <laughs> quite a while. Um, I think all you need to know about where Fox is and where it led itself is what happened shortly after 
the 2020 election ended, meaning votes were being cast and then finally cast and counted, and projections were being made on election night or the hours thereafter. The decision desk, the desk at Fox, which in my years, again, 2002 to 2010, was highly competent, staffed by really aggressive, smart people, statistical, analytical, and otherwise. The decision desk at Fox made a determination about Arizona and called it accurately, well ahead of my network and other networks. They got it right and they were first. And the person responsible for that was fired. That's all you need to know. Mm. In the competitive environment of news, where being first and right is the preeminent qualification for excellence, that's the definition of excellence, first and right, gets you fired, that sums it up. And, you know, when you were when you saw that settlement and saw all of the the internal communications that came out for how you know the news was being done behind the scenes did that do you think it should that fox should still be considered a legitimate news network now i'm not in the business of delegitimizing or legitimizing mm -hmm. news networks i have enough jobs to do <laughs> um, i leave that up to the audience and those who are people who cover and critically evaluate news coverage I'm subject to that criticism and evaluation and scrutiny like everyone else. It's not my, it's not my role in life to do that. Mm -hmm. um, what Fox is can be seen and what it's become can be seen in that decision desk firing, mm. first and right, let me reemphasize that, first and right, and the settlement and everything that came out in discovery. One thing I told everyone while that case was going on because I was learning a, a great deal about the litigation as I was writing my book, The Big Truth, is Dominion had a very simple attitude. Discover what you want, look in any direction. We are an open book, but we're gonna discover everything we can about you, Fox News. And it did. And nothing that was revealed about Dominion did anything to harm Dominion. And much of what was discovered about Fox led to that massive, massive settlement. Right. So yep. that is all viewed in full public and is in its own way, chapter and verse about what that news organization did, what it knew internally and what it had to come to account for. Right, right. It was there's something about lawsuits that that make things in, in, and trials that make things incredibly clear and make the truth very apparent. Um, this campaign that we're having for 2024, it already feels a little bit like deja vu. We've got Trump making increasingly unhinged comments on social media. Just, just last week, I think it was, he pledged to target NBC for treason uh, when he's back in office. What do you make of those threats? Do you, are they serious? Do they alarm you? Like, what do you think when you see Trump attacking the press again like he was in 2016? The, the, the rhetoric is different. It's different in kind. Um, fake news was never something I was particularly concerned about because I believe mm. durable facts are exactly that, durable facts. And politicians can and will of both parties argue over those facts, dispute them, deny them. But if they're durable, they'll win the day. It may take a while, but they'll win the day. So I was never particularly alarmed by fake news. Enemy of the people, that got my attention, made me nervous. And now very specific references to hauling people in or the threat of arrests, the idea of treason being associated with a free press. Yes, of course I find that alarming. Of course I find that 
deeply, deeply troubling. And we have an obligation to make sure the public is aware of this. And there's a great sense of anxiety about how much of Trump do we cover? And by that coverage, are we platforming it? Are we legitimizing it? Are we normalizing it? Look, we have to be very clear about this. When he says things like that, that are so demonstrably outside of any conceivable norm of rhetoric in America, attention must be brought to them. And the public has to know that this is out there and that even by Trumpian standards, these sound different. They sound more threatening. They sound, to my ears, a bit more menacing and have a little bit more intention behind them. Public should know that and be able to evaluate that and make their own judgments. So you're not of the opinion that we shouldn't amplify Trump's sort of unhinged commentary, because I know that's a that's a, a, a belief that some press critics are making. Yes. So there is this question about amplification or reportage. Right. Look, um, the amplification question is sort of already decided. Those who like what Trump says amplify. Those who may be disturbed by it won't know about it any other way because they're not in those amplification channels. They should find out about it through reportage. And I don't think that they're there's like this box canyon idea. Well, if you're doing it, you're only making things worse and you're going deeper into this box canyon of making things worse. I don't believe that. I believe reportage matters and presenting people with things that actually have been said and contextualizing the environment in which they were said and the potential impact of those words matters. And so I will always come down on the side of reportage. There was a big debate during the Trump administration about reporters making themselves the story. In 2018, after you and Trump made headlines for getting into it, you said, I quote, I do my level best to not make myself part of the story, and I think the best journalists operate that way. Do you think keeping your head down and letting the facts speak for themselves is the best practice for reporters, and does it still work in the Trump era? I do. I, I believe in that. Uh, Trump and I had our exchanges, but they were never as hostile as other exchanges. I had my exchanges with other presidents. You can look them up online. <laughs> Hello, President Obama. Um, so asking tough questions of presidents began when I started covering presidents with Bill Clinton. I've never shied away from that. Tough questions are part of the job of a White House correspondent. And if you get a little irritated response from the president, that means you've probably touched a nerve and me and the president's probably going to say something he hasn't said before about an issue of importance, not only to the White House, but to the public at large. So that's a crucial part of covering any president. But I do believe in the Trump era and with Trump specifically, keeping your head down and taking all emotion out of it is the best strategy. And here's why. Whatever you think about Donald Trump as a candidate, as a president, as a former president, as a candidate, again, he has a very high level of emotional intelligence. He understands how to read people and manipulate people. And he understands how to control their emotions and move them around and maneuver them to his benefit. He's highly skilled at that. So when you become agitated, he senses that instantly and he begins to work it against you. And in the confines of television, which he understands also at a very high level of sophistication and experience, that oftentimes, if almost always, works to his advantage. 
So I think being serious and direct and nothing else is the best approach. You know, Major, I it's funny that you mentioned your clashes with former presidents. I was I'm ashamed to admit that before this interview I was uh, stalking your Wikipedia page and there's a very funny section of it that says controversies and I was like, "Oh my god, this is going to be juicy." And it's an entire paragraph about a tough question uh, that you leveled at uh, President Barack Obama about the Iran nuclear deal. But it's like almost quaint to read now in, in knowing the sort of Trump administration briefing room theatrics that we had. Like, how much do you think the briefing room has changed from when that question from you to, to Obama makes an entry on a Wikipedia? And now we have, I, I would say, like daily questions that all get pretty aggressive. So the daily briefing is a different animal, of course, than a presidential right. news conference. Uh, the press secretary oftentimes takes a lot of incoming. Uh, there's always a joke among press secretaries when the new one comes in, oh, here's your flak jacket, metaphorically in real, <laughs> real life. So there's always that sense of it. Uh, and certainly during the Trump era, with the various press secretaries who were there, uh, they took a lot of tough questions. The briefing room was filled filled. I mean, I remember during those Trump White House briefings, I would have to get to my seat in the front row 10 minutes at least before the briefing, because if I didn't, I would have to swim literally through the aisles to get to my seat. And if, and that that's a that's a time consuming process when you're having to paw your way through the entire filled aisles of the briefing room. So those briefings in terms of their ratings, their watchability, the back and forth, they, they were, as Trump often said, pretty good television. And he rated his press secretaries in part about their ability to make it good and memorable television. That's changed. It's calmed down quite a bit in the Biden presidency, to be sure the briefings are much longer. They delve a lot more deeply into a lot of other policy areas and eddies. They're much more like the sort of Obama era briefings, but there are still moments of contention and pressing and pushing it back. Um, Look, I don't think that that question to President Obama was out of bounds. I wouldn't have asked it if it was. Mm. It was regarded by some at the time as maybe overly aggressive. I don't think so. And I know the hostages don't believe it was too aggressive. They're right. glad I asked that question. Yeah. Um, and everyone in that position, anyone who has the privilege of being a White House correspondent and the opportunity, the singular journalistic opportunity to ask a president a question, any president, will be judged and scrutinized based on the quality of the question and the news generated by it. That is the coin of the realm. Did your question produce news? If it did, it was excellent. If it didn't, it wasn't. Very nicely said. And now let's get into your podcast. After two years of reporting your podcast, Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is out. Congratulations, that was Thank a you. big haul. Uh, it is an eight hour limited series with an in-depth analysis of the former FBI double agent who was secretly involved with the Kremlin during the Cold War. Robert Hansen's espionage, as you report, caused the execution of at least three individuals and cost hundreds of millions of dollars of damage to the United States intelligence program. People who knew one side of him said he was regular as pie, a solid citizen. But who was Robert Hansen? He was, in every way, 
a contradictory human being. And as I mentioned before, I've been in Washington since 1990. So I've had a fair amount of experience with political figures who shade the truth or sometimes just straight out lie. But I've never met, or because I've never met Robert Hansen, but I've never encountered, studied, researched someone who was as diseased and regular and routine a liar as Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen was a liar hour by hour almost every moment of his adult life, certainly every moment he was in the FBI. He started working for the Soviets in 1979. He'd only been in the FBI for three years. He was what, we, what I learned in the terminology of espionage, a walk-in. What does that mean? It means he wasn't recruited. Back during the Cold War, and those who weren't alive then don't understand this, during the Cold War, the Soviets and the United States were engaged every day in trying to recruit people on the other side to get them to tell them secrets about the other side. So we were constantly trying to recruit Soviets. Soviets were constantly trying to recruit Americans to give them little bits of information to create some level of advantage or equalize things between the superpowers in this massive global competition. Robert Hansen just walked in the door of a known place in New York where Soviets were. And because he was an FBI agent and had paid attention to the conversation in the offices he worked in in New York, he knew that was a good place to find Soviets. So he just walked in, offered his services. And that began his career that had three different segments, his career, his side hustle, if you will, his side, his second career, spying for first the Soviets, then after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, he did it for the Russians. And so he was this person who outwardly did this. He went to mass every single day talked about how much he hated communism and communists all the time, talked about how much he believed in law and order and America, how much he loved his family. All of these outward projections of patriotism, anti-communism, Catholicism, moral uprightness, every step of the way, projecting all of these things, he was doing the exact opposite. That to me was both fascinating and repulsive, and something I just couldn't um, stop looking into once the the hook got in me. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm also like blown away by by how recent it was. What when you were doing all this reporting on it and research, what did you find his motive was for doing this? Oh, it's the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate question. Why? 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 <laughs> we get at it, but I will tell everyone there isn't one answer. Hmm. Because of the complexity of Robert Hansen, there are layers of answers. And we've talked to more than 50 people. We talked to his psychiatrist who debriefed him after his arrest and conviction for a full year, two hours every week. We got some interpretation from him, from those who worked closest with him. Let me give it to you this way. Did he have a rough relationship with his father? Yes, he did. His father was a Chicago cop, a lieutenant, a pretty well-known one in the neighborhood in which he grew up just outside of uh, O'Hare International Airport. Did his father rag on him, insult him, say he would never measure up? Yes, he did. Is that an excuse or motivation to spy for the Soviets? Probably not, but it was an irritating factor, no doubt. Did Robert Hansen at various stages of his FBI career feel he was underappreciated and bureaucratically ignored? Yes, he did. Was he also promoted? Yes, he was. Was he considered in some respects a pretty good FBI special agent? Yes, he was. So did he get hassled and 
shunted off to terrible places and not get good promotions. No, he got good assignments and good promotions. But nevertheless, he nursed a kind of resentment that the FBI didn't do that faster or move him higher. So resentment is a component of it. Is money a factor? Yes. Decisive? No. He got about $600,000 over the course of his side hustle spying career. Compared to the value of the secrets he gave the Soviets and the Russians, he could have made much, much more, millions upon millions of dollars if he had asked for it. Right. But he didn't. Huh. So money can't be the explanation. So money isn't. Bureaucratic dismay isn't. Tough relationship with his father isn't, not singularly, but they all sort of fit together. There's one other component part of it that people who knew Hansen well said. They think he had kind of a God complex. Mm. What do I mean by a God complex? Well, there are those who believe that Hansen, because of the information he was handing over of tremendous destructive value to the United States and advantageous value to the Soviets and the Russians, was playing this sort of master chess game of keeping everyone kind of an equilibrium based on what they knew. And therefore, he alone was the one engineering the level of hostility and anxiety between superpowers. There's no evidence that any of that's true, but there are those looking back on the case and looking back at the Robert Hansen they came to know and pick apart his psychology who think part of it was a kind of inflated God complex. So there you have it. Hmm. Well, now not to give too much away, but when the FBI realized Hansen was trading U.S. secrets to Russia, the key was to get secrets from Hansen that were kept in his coveted Palm Pilot. FBI then rookie, then rookie Eric O'Neill was given that mission. Can you explain how that went down? Yes. And Eric O'Neill features prominently in our podcast, as does every other significant FBI player in the investigation. And one thing that the audience needs to understand, and I want to communicate. So on one side of the ledger, Robert Hansen is a huge FBI failure. What else could you say about someone who was in the Bureau for 22 years and spied maliciously against our country the entire time and was undetected by the FBI? Massive failure. And yet, when the FBI finally discovered that the mole that they'd been looking for for years upon years was in fact Robert Hansen and they had to build a case and build it rapidly and make it absolutely airtight, they did so within a matter of months. And Eric O'Neill is a not insignificant player in that drama. He was recruited to be the office mate of Robert Hansen, to have always eyes on Hansen while he was in FBI headquarters working in what was a manufactured job. Hansen thought it was a real job, but it wasn't. It was a way to keep surveillance on him all the time he was in FBI headquarters. And Eric O'Neill was the point of that spear of surveillance, always keeping an eye on Hansen and understanding his routines and importantly, how to break his routines. Because to get to that Palm Pilot, which I know this sounds quaint now, it's almost like a piece from antiquity, but in 2000, the Palm Pilot was a revolutionary piece of personal data technology. And Robert Hansen loved it and he had the most advanced kind and he kept a lot of information in there. And Eric O'Neill believed and the FBI came to believe that the things they needed most to find out what Robert Hansen was genuinely up to would be inside that Palm Pilot. So Eric O'Neill had to find a way, collaborating with others in the FBI, to break Robert Hansen's daily patterns, get him away from that Palm Pilot just long enough for it to be decoded and the FBI to find out what was in it. We tell that story and I promise, riveting audio detail in Agent of Betrayal. 
Major, we're going to end this with a quick uh, rapid round, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, right the four questions, we want brief answers. Uh, Diana, you can start. Do you have any guilty pleasure news outlets? No. You love it all? Yeah. Every single one. Daily Mail? Tabloids? Well, see, so, so I mean, it, I, I guess the question presumes I have guilty pleasures in the news gathering world, and I don't think I do. So I'm probably not, I'm, I'm probably giving you a deeply unsatisfactory answer. Extremely unsatisfactory, <laughs> but that's fine. This is the light, we'll keep the lightning round moving. Uh, one politician that you would like to get dinner with? Xi Jinping. Wow. Win international. Okay. Not Matt Gates. Uh, Diana. Uh, not uh, remotely. <laughs> have you ever had dinner with Matt Gates or, or no. met with him? No. Uh. I've not had dinner with him. Okay. Okay. Uh, best guest you've ever interviewed? Uh, for the takeout, I would say uh, there's a lot of competition there. I would say on the comedic side, because I like to indulge getting co comedians on my show, Roy Wood Jr. <laughs> and for news value in the moment, Ty Cobb, when he was still representing President Trump in the Russia investigation, and there was, at the time we talked to him, on the cusp of whether or not President Trump would or would not sit down for an interview with Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Ooh, magnificent mustache, I must say. It's a shame to, to reserve it to a podcast, but that's a good one. Last one, best journalism advice you've ever gotten? There is, there, is not, there is no such thing as a small story. Every story matters to the people involved, whether it's on the front page or not. There are no small stories, and every fact in every small story is just as big as a big fact in a big story. Thanks so much, Major Garrett, for joining us, and thank you all for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and check out coverage of our conversation with Major Garrett on Mediate.com.